I think you should build a career in data science. Welcome to Build a Career in Data Science. I'm your host, Jacqueline Nolas. And I'm also your host, Emily Robinson. This podcast is a data download into all the non-technical knowledge and skills you need to succeed in a data science career. In season one, each episode is about a chapter from our book, also called Build a Career in Data Science. You can buy the book at bestbook.cool and get 40% off with the code BUILDBOOK40%. But if you don't have it yet, you won't get any less enjoyment out of the podcast. But notice the yet. You must have it, right? I think we've talked, I feel like we've run through all the jokes in previous episodes about like buying the book. (laughs) I guess you could say that that joke has become a failure of a bit. Oh, God. Which is a good segue into what we're talking about this week. Is it? Maybe that was a failure. Just just go. (laughs) Yeah. Go for it, Jacqueline. Yeah, so this week we're talking about failures. When you try and set out to do something and do not succeed at it, like, make a joke. But also data science. Yeah, and, uh, you know, this was, I think, something that's not necessarily talked about that much, although fortunately it is something that is being discussed more. But, you know, the reason I think it's so important that we have this topic is because, well, Honestly, in kind of any professional career in life itself, like failure is inevitable, but especially in data science, like by its definition, data science, some types of data science projects are very risky, as we'll talk about. And, you know, the majority of them might fail. And if you fall into the trap of either avoiding any projects that like have a hint of failure or kind of emotionally collapsing or blaming yourself or, you know, not not trying to learn anything when things do fail, you're not going to be a very successful data scientist. Yeah, and I think there's kind of, especially when you're just starting out, there's this feeling of like data science is this giant bag full of exciting toys. There are neural networks, ARIMAs, ANOVAs. There's so many things you can do. And because there are so many things you can do, it means anything is possible. And so when you get to these projects that don't work, you know, when things fail, when they don't go right, it's really easy to look at it and be like, well, I had all these cool tools. How come I couldn't make it work? I must be the problem here, when in fact, the entire field is based on the idea of trying new stuff, and often new stuff does not actually work. Yeah, and I think it's not just the like technical, like, oh, if I was just technically better, maybe another model would have worked, or like, you know, a different way to import this data. But also, our last episode was about working with stakeholders. And one of our reality checks was like, yes, it's an important skill like communication. Um, It's something that you can get better at, you should think about, you should get feedback on. But at the end of the day, like there, there are things, again, still kind of out of your control in terms of what people want to do or how they'll react or things you just couldn't possibly have known. Um, that's another reason data science problems can fail, even if technically everything was fine. Yeah, I think that's true. It's like humans are always kind of getting it. Like, like reality is getting in the way of the cool theoretical math you, you read and think about. Um, yeah, oof, oof, this is... Uh, I don't know. This is gonna. I think this will this will bring up some emotions. This episode, certainly in me, a person who has <laughs> failed sometimes. Um, yes, and has a whole talk about it. I do have a whole talk about it. Um, that's right. Um, yeah. Why don't we talk about the different ways that data science projects can fail more explicitly first? Because I think that'll set us up for a lot of good yes. discussion. Yes. Yeah. So I can start. So I think. Um, One is actually like you think you've succeeded. You're like, you know, I did the project, I built the model, it had great accuracy, you know, or or whatever, right? I wrote the report, I shared it, I delivered the model, and then it never gets used, right? And then if it's a report, it's ignored maybe in the decision-making process you hope to influence. If it's like, oh, I was going to do a machine learning model, it never gets deployed to the website or never gets used by the team it was meant to help. So this is a case, right, where you're like, I did all the work and then like at the at the at the quote, you know, finish line, you just sort of boop, fall over. Um, and the kind of problem there is is, you know, it may have had a good impact on you in terms of being a good learning experience, but if it doesn't get used, uh, it doesn't really have much of an impact on the business, which is kind of the end of the day what data scientists and in industry are judged on, not like how how smart they are, did they use the most technically advanced thing. I find it fascinating that this is the first type of failure that you chose to talk about, because I find it to be the most cruel and sinister of the forums <laughs> of pro- ways data science projects can fail. Because right, like, at some level, these kinds of failures are, someone comes at you, the company, and they're like, hey, it would be, it'd be cool if we had a model that would predict which customers are going to stop subscribing, you know, are going to churn. I always use that example. 
but they're going to sub- mm-hmm. always churn. And then you go and you build that model and you're like, look, the model uses the logistic regression. Da, 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 da. I did it. And they come to you and they're like, okay, that's cool. But actually, you know, we're not really sure how we're going to use this, right? Like, or like, oh, that's cool. <laughs> but like, unless it, you know, unless it, it has feature XYZ, which we actually didn't realize we wanted in the first place, mm-hmm. we won't actually use it. And so like, this is the cruelest one because sometimes you do exactly what you were asked to do and it turns out that what people asked you for is not what they truly wanted. In fact, I think most of the time when people ask you for stuff, it turns out that's not exactly what they want. But sometimes the difference can be so big that the whole project kind of falls over. Right. Or even if it's what they wanted. Um, so our end of chapter interviewee, uh, Michelle Kim talks about like actually building a, a churn model to be used for the customer team. And so the customer, uh, like the customer service team and the customer service team leadership said, oh, we really want to know this. We want to be able to predict who's going to churn. But at the end of the day, it was going to be the customer service agents who would be using this, um, you know, to influence how they talk to customers. But they said, this, that's not what I need to know. I need to know what to do. Like, okay, great. You told me there's an 80% probability they're going to churn. Like, now what? Like, do I, do I offer them something special? Do I, do I try to talk to them in a different way? So that was the case of you actually had the wrong stakeholders. And she said, like, I should have talked to the people kind of on the ground who would be actually using this first. Yeah. And in that in particular, the hey, I want you to build a model to predict something or do an analysis to tell me something. And then once that is created, the people will be like, actually, that is not useful unless you tell me what to do. Like, mm-hmm. right, like if you do analysis of like, hey, these types of customers spend far more. What do you do with that? Do you then market to them more heavily? Do you try right. and get other people to become like them? Like what? So what? Like so much data science falls apart with the, okay, so now what do I do with this? And that is such a big force the failure both in like the modeling production creating a thing that's continuously predicting current and just an analysis of like yeah hey people in the loyalty program spend more so what you know like god i don't know that one really gets me yeah <laughs> yeah and i think that's why one thing that's helpful is i've maybe said this on the podcast before but my first manager said to me like one of his favorite questions to ask stakeholders is what decision are you going to be making with this because that can really start poking at it and sometimes the answer is you know, as you get more senior, I think you can become a partner in that, right? You don't like, if they say, oh, we're not really sure. You don't just have to be like, nope, we're not doing that project. You could be like, oh, why don't we brainstorm? Like what are, let's think about if we find these customers, you know, spend more, like how might we want to change the loyalty program? Um, You can brainstorm. So you don't just have to then throw up your hand, but it's really good to ask the beginning because that also saves you from lots of just kind of like random questions that are like just just because we're interested that at the end of the day won't really make any difference yeah and i think um i think that's also why i think this is the most sinister and cruel type of data science failure it's because this is often out of your hands depending on how junior you are like yeah like you could have built the coolest thing but the person the people who asked you to build it wouldn't listen to you right like or like there's just there's a disconnect between you, the person who built it, and the people who decide if they need it and what they're going to do with it. So it is unfortunate when that is a type of failure, when it's just like things, forces beyond my control in an organization have caused it that I cannot. My, my project will not go places. Yeah, I will say, uh, when, so I took today, I happened to take a, a great workshop by uh, Lara Hogan, who is um, a, a, a um, former kind of like tech leader, VP of engineering, and now does... Um, coaching for managers and does workshops. And so this was influence without authority. And one thing she talks about, which I thought was like, really, I hadn't approached this thinking of like, how will this help my data science work? It's more like other things I want to change. But her point is like learning about stakeholders and their currencies, which um, she defines like the possible currencies as people's core needs. So if you look up the biceps model, you'll find this. Uh, But basically, it's trying to understand, okay, what does this person care about? Because often we think about what do we care about? It's like, well, we care about like making a really cool model or we care about that we can like do a conference talk where we say we'd like deploy this model and let's hit five million times a day. So sometimes we think of like, okay, let's convince other people that they want to care about this angle, that they really want us to use knowing that, that they really want this to be like, you know, adopted everywhere. But her point is like, well... You can do that. It's going to be really hard. And it's something we think about, like, what do they care about? So do they care about um, improvement? So like growth or progress? Do they care about status or significance? So recognition. And again, you can look up all their six, these core needs. But I think that was a, a really good point of, again, things can be out of your control, but tools that you can use to try to understand this sort of stuff before you spend months working on it. Because if you're saying like, okay, they're saying this, but when I start asking these, like they initially say this, when I start asking these open questions, I realize like, wow, they're really 
thinking about this project very differently. And maybe there's a way that like, you know, both, you know, ideally like win-win kind of scenario, you both can sort of get what you want, but you may find like, oh, maybe there's just like a mismatch here. And like, we're not going to both be able to get out what we need from this. Yes, I think that makes sense. Um, Let's talk about another type of data science failure. And that is when you try and build a model and it just doesn't work. Um, So like, for instance, maybe someone comes to you and they say, hey, we want to use the, you know, the text in the emails that customers send us, like the feedback emails. We want to use that to predict, um, you know, to predict um, which products are going to have problems. You're just blatantly reusing examples. I am really bad at thinking of stuff, but also you used a talk me and Heather gave as one of your examples. I did, I did. We're all just really, we're recording (laughs) this in an evening. Normally we record this podcast in the early afternoon. And so this is like- It's a little more wild. Yeah, that's right. Build a career nights. Yeah. um, Okay. Uh... I was definitely Sorry, saying, yeah, saying no, the okay, emails, yes. yep. but like you could, you have some idea of like, Hey, some data set I can use to predict something. And then you go and train a model on it. And it turns out, no, that data set could not be used to predict that thing. And this is frustrating because like, I don't think you really know until you try this, right? Like you don't know if I'm going to pick something else. You don't know if, um, if customer survey data can help you actually predict where you should build a store until you try building a model, you know, to actually do it. Like, there's not really a way you can, like, pre do pre-work on this. You kind of just have to do it. And also, this is the kind of place where people talk big the most, right? Like, as a data scientist, it's really easy to be like, oh, if we put a super good model in there, then, uh, you know, God, what did I even say? Um, survey data can be used to predict a model. Like, I think we can build a model to do this. And then this is the point where it's like, no, we cannot build a model to do this, right? And like, just sometimes there isn't a connection between the data you have and the thing you want to use that data for, like predicting where to build a store and which customers are going to turn. Blah, blah, blah. Um, so this kind of failure, I find this one is cruel because usually it's like, it, it feels like the most reputation hurting in the sense that like, ah, if I had known more data science techniques, maybe this data would have worked. In reality, no. Oftentimes, there's just no connection between data and the thing you're trying to predict. But, like, it feels, it hits you right in the, ah, the technical stuff, you know? Well, I think, I don't know, I feel like this is also really hard. Because let's say, okay, if you have only one thing, you're saying, okay, I have this survey data where they answered one question. Can that predict X? Like, all right, it's pretty easy to tell. Like, you could try one or two things. You're like, yep, this is just not predictive. Like, there's no way. Um, But what if you have a data set with, like, you know, hundreds of features, because then you could say like, okay, I could throw it all into a model. And you're like, well, that performs kind of crappy. Maybe if I try a different model, probably this needs some feature engineering, because let's say like this is, you know, train ridership in Chicago, which is an example used in a predictive modeling textbook. And, you know, one thing that really improves that model is, uh, okay, having uh, weekends and weekdays, separating those, like an indicator variable for that, which you have to add. You have to add a variable for holiday that didn't come in with the data set. I think there was even one for like a few like anomalous events. So like the World Series, you know, I don't know, championship happened or they won the championship. But the point being, like that was something that that wasn't in the data set originally. By doing some feature engineering, they were able to improve the model. But like how I don't know, it's like, okay, great. If you have two two whole features, like there's always so much you could do. But when you have hundreds, I think you are left a little bit like, oh, if I tried something more complicated or if I like talk to more domain experts or do I need to gather more, more data? I think that's when it's really challenging is could, could it, could it be better? I would like to double down on this. It is certainly the case that with a whole bunch of features, you could get sucked in forever being like, ah, oh, if I just engineer the features a little bit more, this will work. But you know, that's not the only way to get sucked in forever, right? You could be like, what if I use neural networks? What if I use more mm-hmm. layers in those neural networks? What if I did big nose? What if I tried different like, like, or to your point, what if you try and get new data? Like, like, there's just so many ways you could take a problem that is not working and be like, ah, if I try another thing, then it will work. And I think part of learning how to work best with failure is learning when to be like, okay, enough's enough. This isn't going to pan out. Yeah. And I think one thing that's helpful is I've worked on a team that's um, thought about before we tackle something, especially that's like kind of this more, um, you may call it like research and development type project, like, oh, we're really, you know, it's kind of a new area, really not sure if it's going to work or if like anything will pan out, is setting ahead of time um, some breakpoints along the way um, and also your appetite. Like really think, okay, how much time do we want to devote to this? And all right, what are we going to spend the first four weeks on? And then we'll kind of check, you know, so that first four weeks might be like, okay, we gather data 
and we do a logistic regression and we just like see how that does. Uh, and I think that's kind of helpful because then rather than just continually like being able to just contribute more and more and more, and then you wake up and it's like six months later and you're like, that was not <laughs> worth it to spend all this time on this project. I would not have said I wanted to spend, it was worth spending six months is to really think about that at the start because it can be so easy to go down these, these rabbit holes and just like keep, you know, throwing uh, what's called like throwing good money after bad. Yeah. And I think this is kind of, again, like a little bit of like a, you, as you get more experience with this, you become a senior data scientist, you get better at it. But like, there is this idea that like, as a very junior data scientist, you may believe, ah, the better I can make the model, the better things are. So I will make the model as good as I possibly can. But as a more, as you get practice, you start to realize, ah, my time is valuable and be spent it on other places. So if I could spend three weeks to get this model a half percent better and also probably make the model way more complex, it is not worth it. It is better to keep less good and move on to other stuff. Like get the quick wins and move on. And that's like your manager should help with too when you're more junior is you really should be talking with them and they should be helping you think about, okay, like when should I think about like stop working on it Or maybe it's like also like, okay, ask for help. Maybe if you get like one of the senior data scientists to look at it and they can help you figure out, okay, do I just need to spend a bit more time and I'm missing something that maybe could easily really improve the performance or do they look at it and they're like, "Mm, yeah, I think you've tried very reasonable things. This is probably just not predictive. Yep, I agree. Um, So then the last type of failure we have on our list is um, when you don't even have the data in the first place. I like this kind of failure a little bit. Because well, it happens early. Because, yes, there's very little, like, it's usually you have a project of like, hey, let's use, let's try and forecast, blah, the blah, using, I, what's a new data set we haven't talked about? Product reviews from the website. Let's mm-hmm. use product reviews from the website. Blah, blah, blah. And then you go and it's like, oh, the product review data actually isn't saved in a way we can use it. Or like, oh, we delete them. That would be a weird data set to delete after a week. But like, oh, we delete every product review after only a week. Or like... There's, or like, oh, that's in a different organization and they, they use a different key for the users and we actually can't connect them for reason X, Y, Z. Like there's so many ways that data doesn't actually exist in the first place. And yeah, I like this kind of failure because yeah, you don't really have to do that much work. You're just like, nope, we're leaving early. Um, happens a but lot. But that's a nice idea though, where it's like, oh, like you kind of, it's like pretty obvious, like, oh, you know, this, this data doesn't work, but then there's like the surprise like data is bad, right? You start working with it and you're like, okay, like, cool. Like I'm like getting along. I'm like doing this data set. And then the data engineering team is like, oh, actually like, you know, we had to drop like, you know, half the data from one of those months or I don't know, like the user, the unique identifier, like that we use for user IDs, like it was corrupted before this date. And so like, even though, you know, user number one in 2016 is not the same as user number one in 2019 or who knows, right? Like all these things that, Maybe some of them you could tell by poking at that data, being like, okay, is, are they missing in certain ways? Or um, I thought I, I wrote a SQL query to pull from 2016, but there's only six entries from 2016 and every other year has, you know, a million. So something went wrong with 2016. Um, you know, so there's certain ways in that case you could do it by checking your data, which is something we definitely advise. But sometimes it's things that you couldn't tell just by looking for the data. It's just... I don't know. It's like in in someone's head, right? There's no way you would guess that like, oh, the user one is actually not, you know, necessarily the same person over time. So I agree that there is no safe harbor for weird data stuff. Like, (laughs) like, there's no no true safety here. You could, the product could be out for three months, the model could have been deployed, and then it turns out actually everything is like, there is no true safety. But I do think you can also still mitigate a lot of the risk fairly quickly, right? Like the difference between, oh, I got some data and I'm going to really kick the tires on this data to see if there are problems versus, oh, I got the data, I'm going to trust it and then go through the modeling and then find it out. Like, you can help mitigate this a lot. And like, it's worth putting that effort in. Um, Because yeah, this this type of failure does happen a lot, but if you are good about it, you can avoid it. Yeah, and that's actually, I think, leads us uh, very nicely into like uh, what I want to talk about, which is minimizing these risks. Right? So we talked about there are all these failure things. We talked about some of them are out of your control, but there are things that you can do, and so that's one of them. Right? Is really kicking the tires on your data set. I would also recommend talking to the people who um, collected that data, whether, for example, this is like store survey data and just talking with the you know, people who hand out the, the surveys in the store um, and maybe also the data engineering team that's responsible for cleaning it up and, and modeling it and whatnot. So that's kind of one way. Um, and then 
I think there's a lot here with that kind of goes back to our last episodes. I just want to reiterate, which is doing things like communicating often with your stakeholders on updates on how it's going and setting clear expectations at the beginning of, okay, this is you know, a riskier project. It's, it's um, data that we've never worked with before. We're not sure it's going to be there in a useful format. And we're trying to predict something that, you know, very well might not have a signal in the data, um, you know, conveying that up front so that they know and they aren't expecting like, oh, data sciences are going to work on this with three months and they're going to hand us over like a perfectly performing model and it will like solve all our problems. Yay. And then you go into the hole for six months or three months and you emerge and you're like, we don't have anything. And they're like, what the, you know, we built our whole roadmap around this. What do you mean you don't have anything? Yeah, I think that's true. And I think there's the gotta, you gotta have the like, the data science humbleness and not the data science hubris. Like the data science hubris is like, of course we can take the the the, the pr- product review data and predict where to build a factory. Like, of course, models can do anything. Like, like setting that expectation is really going to shoot you in the foot. And then like four months later, you don't talk to them all. And they're like, so how did that go? That conversation is very awkward as opposed to like, yeah, we can try this. We think there's some risk, blah, 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 blah. We'll see pretty, we, we'll try and do what we can to, like do a POC or whatever to like learn, like to try small steps before we hyper invest in this, that will tend to go a lot better, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And then I think like one of the last points for the section is also, um, you know, as we were sort of driving out with like mitigating some of these risks and, and the, and the project, like a lot of the projects we, you know, talked about and gave examples of was like the, right, the data is messing or trying to model something because there are some data science projects, the ones that are more analytics that are not that risky, right? So what I mean is, for example, they're like, all right, here's this beautiful data set that is, that's clean. That's, I don't know, the transaction data for the company, right? It's maintained, you know, very well by the data engineering team and is, is in Looker. And we just want to build a dashboard that shows uh, year over year, you know, figures and, uh, whatever, like total monthly sales and it broken down by customer type, right? And you know all that data's in there, you know it's very clean, you know how to use Looker, you know it can make these dashboards, like that is not a very risky project. Um, and a decent amount of analytics projects, I would say kind of fall into that um, versus the more um, machine learning ones, for sure that's risky, right? We just talked about trying to predict things may not be there. And even the decision science ones, because of that stakeholder concern, right? So the, the concern that, um, okay, you're trying to help them make a decision. Will this actually be used by them? Um, you know, in a way, will it be, you know, how do you present it? So it's convincing, uh, will it be able to arrive in time? Are they, um, just already, you know, are they actually going to use it to make the, to inform the decision? Are they just kind of, you know, want to say that they have it. So I did want to point out that, you know, not every data science project is equally risky. I would actually, and so this is our podcast, so we get to say whatever we want. So I'm going to say some unsubstantiated claims Okay. for once. I think that the decision science of like, I'm going to do analysis to help me make a decision is riskier. Those on average really? are riskier than machine learning. Put something in production to do stuff. Say more. Because I think, uh, hey, we, wanna, we want to change how the website looks based on whether or not we think a model determines if you're a business or consumer, whatever, something like that. Mm-hmm. It's pretty, like, you have some pretty generally clear, like, metrics for what success is, right? Like, you can you can test the model. Like, mm-hmm. hey, we can try training the model and, like, see if it can do. Like, there's a lot of ways in or out pretty quickly. But something ephemeral that you do in decision science, it's, it's usually, it's always, like, super vague stuff. Like, someone comes to you, they want to be like, hey, should we launch a new product in purple? And it's like, <laughs> how can you, like, like... To succeed in answering that question, like, there's so many ways that could go south. You might not have the data. The question isn't really well posed. Like, I think it's just very hard to really succeed at answering these sorts of questions. So I think I think there are lots of ways that machine learning problems go wrong and blah, blah, blah. But I think it's, like, a lot clearer. Like, you can you can see with your own eyes how things are going in a way that, like... You could do this whole analysis on the purple thing and then you bring it to them. They're like, actually, this isn't how we thought about the problem at all. And like, we're uninterested, blah, blah, blah. Like, yeah. So which is to say that, um, yeah, again, there's no safe harbor. I mean, I guess like if you, if you literally what you're just trying to do is take data, summarize it and show it to someone, then OK, there's probably some safe harbor. But like yeah. there's a lot of ways things can go sour. 
in data science. Yeah. Or even that dashboard sort of example to go back to it. You're like excited. You're like, oh, people are, you know, I, I've been on teams before, right? That spent a lot of time making dashboards, which I don't know. I still think it's kind of useful. And we had metrics for, you know, who viewed it and like, oh, people were excited at first. They viewed it. And then it's like, mm, it just like drops off. Right. And so you could say that's the dashboard was made. But if you're, you know, again, the success being the actual impact of it, if no one uses it anymore, maybe it's not successful, but maybe it is if it's still used when the board meeting comes up because it's really easy to get the numbers there. So it's not so much the success wasn't daily active users. I think you are right about the dashboard thing. Like I've built many dashboards in my career and I think the vast majority of them got looked at twice. Once the first time someone needed it, Mm-hmm. once a month later and the person is like oh you know or like with a dashboard they're like i need these 80 graphs in it and you put those 80 graphs they're like ah these don't have the real graphs i want add these 40 more and like yeah there are lots of ways that can go wrong you know yeah yeah and i yeah. Ah, gosh and that's why i think it's yeah i think defining success right is here worth thinking about it is success getting the dashboard out is it that they say they're happy with it the first day? Is it that they're still using it two months later? Is it that, well, maybe it's not used very often, but it's critical in this situation that comes up once every six months. So like, that's fine. Um, And I think that can also help inform, again, like how much time you want to spend on these things. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think that's good life advice in general of just like, Mm. get up front with the measure successes and like, tell if these people are actually infested, right? Because it's really and I'm, I'm going to like do a pose and like you won't be able to hear this listeners, but you can try and imagine the pose I'm making. <sighs> well, I guess it'd be kind of cool if you can make a churn model for us, right? Like, I guess it'd be kind of cool, right? Like there's like that attitude of like, oh, we'll see if you can do some work, but they're like the person asking for it isn't super invested in its outcome. That's a lot easier to fail with than a stakeholder who's like, no, I really think we could change the company if we have this churn model, you know? Right. And I think it's worth thinking about, like, I've asked this on teams I've been on before of like, how much are we really trying to kind of like serve them here? So if they're not that interested, like that's fine. And we're not interested versus like, we're trying to use data. So like, we really think this is a change that's needed at the company. Like, I don't know, to make things, you know, I can imagine a, a performance team, right? An en- performance engineering team, make the website faster. Like for them, they're their role is probably to convince other teams to care about that when they're releasing features, um, right? Versus just being like, oh, they don't care. Okay, like that's that's fine. Um, so again, it's kind of worth thinking about like, all right, what do, do I want to spend a lot of capital and energy like trying to influence people here? Or is it okay if they're not that interested? You know, maybe we can just drop this project and that's okay. Yes, yes. And maybe we can drop this subject and put a break in. Oh, what a segue. Oh, what a segue. All right. Uh, This week's sponsor is me. I am the sponsor. Ha ha ha. Um, Yeah, so I guess this is sort of our worst real sponsor. But recently I started selling data science themed watercolor art on my Etsy page and you can buy it listener. Um, So my first piece was a greetings from statistics old timey postcard landscape with a bunch of stats jokes on it. So you can get it as a 11 by 14 inch wall print or as actual postcards to mail to your friends. Um, I'm also working on a second piece too to put on there. I think it's gonna be really cute. Um, And yeah, if you go to shop.jnolis.com and you can use the offer code best art to get 10% off. And that's a real, that's a real discount. That code, is a right? real offer code. I, I can see why that would be confusing. Ones. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, get this, like, you know, your, your, your K-Means model will be like 10%, you know, better <laughs> But no, this is real. Code. Okay. Yeah. I mean, not that the others weren't real, of course, but. Oh, of course. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> no, it's great. I, I ordered uh, Jacqueline's postcards. They're excellent. Except all my, all my nerdy friends from grad school live abroad and I'm, I am cheap, but I think, or it's mostly like I'm lazy because I'm like, why can't I just use a U.S stamp to mail it to France. So I just got to figure out how to, how to get the postcards. I've never mailed something internationally. I'm terrified of it. So if you're listening to this and you're in international order, you could be the person who teaches, makes me learn how to step internationally. So um, yes, but go, go by the right. But let's talk about emotions, 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 emotions. and some actual yeah. examples of yeah. failures, um, which I'm going to make Jacqueline start because she gave a whole talk about this. So she has lots of examples. Yeah, the first 20 minutes of this podcast, we were just talking about like the mechanics of why data science mm-hmm. projects can fail. And so now we want to talk a little bit about the, um, how does it 
feel when things fail. And what do you do about the feelings you get when things fail? Which is actually probably the harder part of these things. Um, yeah, so I guess you want me to just list, just shoot from the hip, <laughs> give a failure and talk? Well, I was thinking, give, give one and talk through the kind of emotions that you, that you felt when you happened. Just imagine it's therapy session. The first project I had out of my undergrad, no, undergrad and master's, my first like industry job was, um, so I was at this e-commerce company that sells, um, they sold things online. And uh, when I started, like like the week before I started that job, they had an issue where there was a bug on the website and no one in like DevOps or whatever noticed the bugs. There weren't errors showing up. They just, some people in marketing and sales saw that sales were down that day and people flipped out. They're like, what's going on? Why are sales down? Blah, blah, blah. And just my gut, they're like, these people are like, oh, this doesn't feel like there's enough money we should be making. And it turns out eventually they did have a bug. And someone came to me and like, hey, can we get some historic data to try and see like if this is kind of a, like a different day from the last, and if it was a Tuesday, like different from the last like six Tuesdays. And I'm like, hold on. This is actually a much more complicated problem because our company is growing every week. There's daily seasonality into how the sales should be. There's all these things we need to think about. This is now what we call an anomaly detection problem, although I don't think it was that term was really big, popular yet. And so I ended up just deciding to build a much more complicated thing to try and do this sort of analysis. And it turned out a whole team got put behind this project. And like it got known throughout the company by my maiden name, the Adler Alert, um, which seems like a big success. But then... <laughs> The tool, after we released it, by like three months in, it got like scrapped. And the reason why is a kind of back to that, you build something and it feels like it's working and then it turns out it's not what the customers wanted. So I built a tool that would predict on a given day across the entire company if sales were too low. But people are like, oh, but we also want it by region. And we also want it not just for sales, but also for a number of orders and AOV. And so I made just like an Excel spreadsheet that was color coded for each day that for each of these like 10 metrics for each of these three regions gave you well how weird was that day green shade of green to shade of red and this became un this was unusable because there's like 30 metrics so on any given day one of them is going to be red just by noise at least and also it's like well if it's an it's, if it's a dark orange is that bad enough what about a a, a, a a orangey yellow like there's no it just it wasn't usable and so despite the fact that the single anomaly detection model for a single metric worked kind of okay the actual product didn't get used and so this thing was scrapped yeah but i feel like that's the sort of thing you could have said at a conference talk and just left all that part out right that last part oh and i do all the time (laughs) (laughs) well and i'm kind of serious i do feel like that's something in the industry is like or like lots you know they talk about oh this amazing thing we built which maybe is still used but they gloss over oh this took us like twice as long as we thought it would because there are all these roadblocks like it's very easy to kind of package things up and present them in certain ways that make it sound like, oh, it was so smart and, you know, glorious and successful, and it did not feel that way at the time. Yeah, well, and in particular, I was a junior data scientist. So as this stuff was not working, I was having panic attacks, right? Because I'm like, oh, my God, the whole company wants to use this tool, and it's not working all these metrics. And like, it's confusing. And like, I'm like, how do I make... How do I make the anomaly detection algorithm work on all these different metrics in mm. all these regions? And now that I know far more about the subject, like you will never get an anomaly detection algorithm that can work that well in such noisy data. Like the data was too noisy for me to actually be able to do effective anomaly detection on that many metrics and regions. But I didn't know that. And I was flipping out and like felt really bad, especially because it was right out of school. Like, ah, if I had taken one extra class, maybe I would have <laughs> avoided this, um, which I now do not believe is the case. How does that make you feel hearing that? <laughs> um, well, it's gonna like how. So what? I mean, what? What? What helped? Was it just time in terms of like these panic attacks and anxiety and like oh, you know, if I was I, a better data I, scientist, it would have been better. I honest to goodness think the thing that's helped me was that kind of story of like, wow, it seems like things are kind of working, but they weren't really, and I was panicking about it. That happened like five more times in my career. And by time five, I'm like, maybe this is just kind of how it goes. And then um, I started to worry less about it. But it really, like, it took a core realization that this, like, oh, my God, this thing isn't working and people are expecting it to work is common and normal and not a flaw in my uh, technical abilities or character. And I think that took time for me to learn. Yeah, so I think that brings up um, two really good points, which is one, you mentioned like learning that it was normal, uh, which is like part of why I wrote the chapter in our book and we're doing this podcast episode. And 
you know, like I said, I feel like it's not necessarily that common right now, but I think more people are starting to talk about that failure. So I want to give a big shout out to Caitlin Houdin and Laura Ellis, who hosted uh, Data uh, Mishaps Night um, the other week, which was, uh, I think it was around 16 people, like just giving five minute talks, talking about their data mistakes. And it was awesome. And there were people who were like, you know, heads of data science, people who have worked at Google, you know, people who had been doing this for like, you know, 30 years way before it was called data science. And it was just so great to really hear one, that this is normal. And two, like that the world doesn't collapse, even when sometimes you made like, fairly large mistakes. Um, and that like, you know, it's, it's okay. You can recover, learn to be more resilient. Um, you hopefully take some lessons from it. And that also, um, you know, if you're surrounded by good people, um, they will, they will understand and work with you and like not, you know, kind of blame and shame and kick you out of the, of the data science club or your job. So I'm really struggling to say something clever to respond with because we have a list of things we want to talk about and you just edited it because like 30 seconds ago there was a bullet called thighs are out of control and I really was curious where that's going to go and now it says things are out of control and I really want to know about those thighs. But... It actually says thighs are out of your control that's oh, what it used to say. That's even weirder. Um, anyway, this is a really silly episode. Um... Yeah, I think that's all true. Um, I think that's all true, that this is just, like, people are putting effort into making this stuff be more commonly known. Um, I also think that, like, for me, like, this is weird, but, like, I used to think, like, oh, if only I was a better data scientist, that model would not have failed, or, like, that project would not have failed, if only I was a better scientist. But, like this is kind of weirdly arrogant in my thinking. Like I, I've decided that's kind of right. Like this idea that like only I am the only thing between success and failure of a project <laughs> involving or different parts of the organization and data and blah, blah, blah. Like, like I am the weak link. It's like, no, I'm not right. Like, like, like either the data, like I can't control how good the data is. I can't, whatever. And also at some level, like, I'm not a company trying, you know, trusting a junior data scientist with three months experience to build a whole new product, right? Like, like there's just like, you're not responsible for the guardrails that should be around you and the other parts of the organization. And I think internalizing that and just kind of accepting that, like, you should be like, I, sh you know, like I should have been getting more help and, or like, I don't know, like, like there's a lot of things I could have had there that if I had them, you know, like I, I couldn't have controlled whether or not I had them. Yeah. And I really want to talk about that point on like the situation around you. Cause so I, Etsy was my first job at a school um, and they became well known for adopting um, in the tech org, this uh, blameless postmortem system. So the idea basically like if a mistake or a failure happens, not blaming the, the person who made it, but, but saying the system failed them. And so actually there was something called the three arm sweater award for the person who like um, I think it like, like basically like had the worst thing happen, like the worst impact on the site. Um, and the reason they did that was because they're like, oh, you're pointing out uh, somewhere where our system isn't resilient. So I think your example of if you're a, ju a junior data scientist and you're working at Amazon and you're able to take down AWS for an entire region for like three hours, like that is not your fault. <laughs> like that should absolutely not be something that you can do. There should be like permissions and, and you know, uh, triple checks here and, and fallbacks or whatever, right? And so I think that's somewhere where a good culture will recognize that and be like, yeah, sure, no one is perfect. Like we can't save anyone from making mistakes, but certain ones should have so many guardrails around it. So that's kind of the ideal situation where you have a, a company and a team that recognizes this. But I do think it's worth pointing out that not necessarily every workplace is like this, right? That you can have an organization that is toxic or that blames people for making mistakes. Um, and so that I think is actually something really to look for um, when you're, you're looking at a job. Is this a culture where it's expected that you will be learning, you'll be making some mistakes and getting um, and giving feedback is a, is a normal part of that because we recognize that, uh, yeah, people, people aren't perfect, things happen, but they're not blamed for that. And we also believe people uh, and systems can improve. Yeah. And I think having been a manager, I guess I'm actively a manager. Um, the job of a manager is to be the person you blame, right? Like, the, like as a manager, if people who work for me are not doing things, like things are going wrong with them, like it's my job to be the one correcting them and like covering for them and guiding them. 
And so that that is the point of a manager. And if your manager is not doing that, or worse, actively being like, well, the reason my team's failing is because person under me, like, that's that's some toxic. Mm-mm. Yeah. Um, I also, uh, so at some level, another way I like to think about this is like, so data science, like so much of what we do is just totally all new stuff, right? Like, mm-hmm. like if someone came to you and they said to you, they're like, hey, you know that car you own? I think I can take one of the wheels off and the car will go better. It will go faster. I think I can do it. I think I can engineer. You'd be like, what? I don't know. I guess you could try. Okay, see how it goes. Probably wouldn't work. Maybe it would work. If it did, that's kind of fantastic. But that's kind of what data science is too, right? If someone's like, hey, do you know that data you have with emails? I bet we can predict which customers are going to buy, you know, buy the new product we launched based on those emails they sent us. Look, I don't know. Maybe it's going to work. We have no evidence of telling you that's true or not until we actually try it. And this whole like... We don't know what's going to happen until we actually see it. Like, it'd be crazy if data scientists came and said, hey, if we take this data set, we can predict X. And it was true most of the time. Like, then we would just go up and be like, I'm going to take a wheel off the car. It's still going to drive. Right? Like, there's so many things you could, like, that's just, we don't live in a world where things are true before you try them. Like, you got to try stuff. And then it turns out whether or not it's true. Right. Or, like, it could... There are other parts of the world, like I know people have come from physics and there's something that's like very frustrating them because like physics, the whole idea is things are very repeatable, right? We're like, we were just able to land a rover on Mars through like, I don't know, math and physics stuff, right? <laughs> Whatever. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Whatever, that, that thing. Right, but like that is not the data science world, right? Where it's like all these things, you know, uh, like, like very well understood principles kind of dictate like exactly what, you know, that we can essentially sort of predict the future in some ways, um, because, okay, I know exactly if I know like the angle of a hill and it's friction and, and the mass of the ball or whatever, I can predict how fast it will go down. And that will always be true. Yes. Yes, exactly. And like, if you're a retail company, there's some, if you give a hundred percent off coupons, people will rush <laughs> to your store. If you give 0% off coupons, people probably won't care. What number is the number that gets enough people to care to make it worthwhile? How would you know that until you sent out, you know, tried stuff, right? You wouldn't. And yeah. like, yeah, so much of data science is just uncovering things that are not yet known, that the idea that like, ah, you didn't correctly do that in your project, and thus you are a failure, right? Or like, even if you did correctly predict stuff, it turns out, as we said, people don't actually, that information isn't actually useful to know in advance, right? Like, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I think that's where here, um, like keeping perspective is helpful. So I really like, so Jacqueline wrote this chapter, and she had a great metaphor of like architects versus a data scientist and kind of growth in there. And the point being like, okay, like a, you imagine like a junior architecture, maybe just architect designs something really small and a, and a really senior one designs a skyscraper. But if either of the building collapses, like that ends your career because people may have died, right? Like that is a very, very bad failure. And there's like lots of reasons, including like, again, things are more predictable that like that they can't do that. But like in most data science cases, like no one is going to die. Depend, But again, it's like, okay, if you work in healthcare and your models are going to be used to decide like treatment for patients, like there's a very rigorous, uh, like, I say, like, like publication process, right? Like there's the, those things like go much more slowly, for example, because it's really important to get that right versus like, ah, uh, okay, fine. If we wanted to speed things up a bit, so we only tested a, you know, a couple different coupon percentage points instead of like all of them, or, you know, we spent three weeks on doing the model instead of seven weeks. And so maybe we got off and we made 50,000 less dollars. Like, okay, like that, you know, it's, it's everything's probably going to be fine. Um, so I think it's, it's helpful to take a step back at some points and like think of like, okay, what, you know, uh, what, what's like, what are the actual consequences of that? And um, of, of like, you know, this, this mistake or this failure and, you know, uh, and, and, and kind of try to separate a little bit from some of the emotions you may be feeling around it. Or even if like the emotion, another person, if they yell at you, you can kind of take a step back and be like, is that a rational response? Or do they have something else going on that means that they're yelling at me for this mistake? Yeah. So they're not, data science is not, you're an architect trying to build a skyscraper right. or a house as a, it's Oh, your, right. I didn't finish didn't, the metaphor. I, I got it. Finish the metaphor. The, the other half is no, what is data science? Actually, data science is like treasure hunting where you are given as a data scientist, you are perhaps given a treasure map and then you got to go see if there's actual treasure there. And sometimes there is, and sometimes there isn't. And a more senior person may be able to handle a more complex, navigating more treacherous waters and a more complicated map. But at the end of the day, still most projects don't get you a treasure. And 
it should be celebrated when that is the case. But if a treasure hunter doesn't find treasure, that's not surprising. Um, and in this case, the treasure map is your project proposal or whatever, and the treasure is actually working. Uh, I think that's perhaps a slightly more um, understandable metaphor than taking a wheel off a car or whatever. But yes, <laughs> I think that, I think that, I mean, I, and that, that kind of paradigm shift took me like 10 years to kind of internalize. Like I was so much at the beginning of my career thinking like, oh, I have to build this project perfectly or, or otherwise I'm going to be a bad data scientist. And that's not really how it works. I've learned. Yeah. I honestly think that's also something people in general can struggle coming out of school. Cause in school you're used to like, okay, like, especially if you're in something like math, right? Like there is a right answer that I like, you don't get to get. And that like, even if I don't get it right away, like someone will eventually give me the answer sheet or whatever. And then I can see where I went wrong, or even in, I don't know, like English, where you could say like, oh, but like, you know, like you're writing an essay, but you still get a grade, you get like immediate feedback, like you got an A, you got a B or whatever. And I think this is hard when you go to a career and you're like, you know, where, where are the grades? How do I know if I'm, I'm succeeding? Where's the answer sheet? Like, you know, why can't anyone just tell me like, oh, you know, you could have done better if you've done X, Y, Z, and said you have to kind of figure out for yourself, was an, was an A ever really possible? Yeah. And in, in school, you like, there is a correct and incorrect, but there's no shape, right? Like in industry, like you could build a model and like, you could actually fail at the thing they asked for and end up doing something better that is more valuable and they're happy for it. Nowhere in school are you going to get the question wrong, but come up with an answer that's even righter and like impress the professor, right? Like, but like that happens all the time in industry. And um, it's, yeah, it's just a very different mentality. Yeah, I think that's a great point, right? And these could be learnings that you can share with with other people, right? About like, oh, this, you know, I didn't find out that there were these problems with this data until like a couple of weeks later. Um, you know, how can we maybe, maybe it's your, your learning is like, let's make a checklist before it's your data science project. Let's meet with the data engineering team or you go to the data engineering team and be like, hey, like, you know, I, I because four of these columns were documented. I thought the rest of them didn't have comments because they were self-explanatory. turns out that's not true. Like, may, can we think of a way maybe to make that better? Or learning about yourself. You're like, uh, you could ask for feedback from a principal data scientist. You're like, hey, I was really disappointed this report wasn't used. Um, you know, uh, can we talk through maybe like some reasons that might have been? And again, it might be things that are out of your control, but it might be like, oh, you know, the deadline was uh, extended. Um you know, on our side and, but that put it past when this would have been useful for them or used, you know, a lot of, um, jargon in, in the report that wasn't, and it was 20 pages long. There wasn't a summary at the beginning. And so it was just kind of overwhelming for them. And so they, they weren't able to use it. Um, so I think that, yeah, I think that's a great point that there's a lot you can learn and also, you know, because I don't want us to like throw up our hand and because failure is inevitable, like you don't have to care about it, you know. It's like just do whatever you want. Nothing matters. Anyway, like, that's, data science. Yeah. that's not what we want to take away, right? Because it's I, I like this quote that um about <laughs> about projects and it's it's talking about like it's like we're not sure we we you know we learn very much like by trying to answer these questions. If if anything, we have more than what we started with, but we feel like we are confused on a higher level and about more important things, right? I feel like that's kind of making mistakes, right? Is I think at some point you want to maybe stop making some mistakes you made, like you know, oh, I didn't communicate enough with the stakeholder before. I didn't ask like what their decision was, right? You kind of build these strategies so maybe you don't make those mistakes again, but you'll end up making new ones, right? But you'll be failing at a, at a higher level about more important things. Yeah, there's this like the core like, hey, there is inherent risk in data science projects, and they will likely not always work. But that's fundamentally different than the like, hey, you can still get better at presenting, guessing that the risk might be there. But but, like, there's lots of ways you can grow in an environment where things fail most of the time. Yeah. Um, And before we end, I want to talk. So I haven't shared a failure story. Yeah. Um, So and this is partly because I will admit, so we've, we've mentioned this on this episode, right? Of like failure is important to growth, uh, right? And like, you know, if you're not failing, you're not growing. And I will actually be here. Like I, I haven't failed that much. And I think that's partly because I haven't taken on risks either with uh, that many risks, either with project risk, right? As we kind of talked about, like more like maybe machine learning or big decision science projects, or things that were out of my comfort zone in terms of, for example, like technical skills. Um, and that's something I've been working on. Um, and I think I'm, I'm getting to do now in my, in my current job, which I'm really happy about it. But I did want to say this of, you know, because we kept saying it's inevitable, it's inevitable, it's inevitable. If you're a data scientist listening, you're like, I'm not 
like, I don't know. I don't think I failed that much. Like that may be a point for you to look back and be like, Hey, why, why not? Like, what have I been missing out on learning opportunities and growth by maybe not taking certain risks? Um, and be, you know, figuring out why, why is that? Is that because, you know, again, you kind of have the school mindset, you're a straight A student, you're like, Oh, I don't want to fail. Is it because you feel like you're in an environment that wouldn't support that? Um, and, and so forth. But I think that's really worth doing some reflecting if this really isn't resonating with you that much, because I think that, or maybe you were making mistakes and you just never poked at the data enough to notice, (laughs) or you never checked in two months later, is my thing still being used? And you just assumed it was. I would say likewise, I think I'm just thinking, like pondering back my career. I think at any given moment for my entire career, I'm always in on a project that is totally unprecedented and likely to fail. Like, I just, anytime I'm in a situation where I'm like, ah, this is a safe, easy place to be, like, I just, my body and brain seek out the, like, ah, but I could go to that new project that no one's even thought about, and let's think about that instead. That's just who I am. Like, I'm like a, like a land rush, like, oh, there's, like, the Old West, I want to go out there, there's a prairie, whatever. And I think that's just different mentalities for types of people, and, like... Both are okay. It is okay that's to true. be me and not be me. <laughs> or, I think you know, that's. Or, I, yeah. I think that's fair. I think if you. I think it's. You know, like we talked about in chapter two, um, different types of data science companies, and the point wasn't oh, there's one that's best for everyone. It depends what you value. So, for example, like a government contractor, like yeah, maybe a little bit more boring. Things may be slower, but it may be a lot. It's it's a lot more stable. Um, and I, uh, you know, then for example, an early stage startup, and that's. Totally okay if you kind of know those trade offs and you're like, yeah, you know what? I've reflected and like where I am in my, you know, life and my values. I want this. But I think it, it can be easy to fall into one of those mentality without actually thinking about it that much, right? Of just like avoiding risks and not realizing, oh, that actually does come with maybe some downsides in terms of growth or getting to do cool new things. And with that, let's take a break. All right, so I came up with the game this week, and we're going to do Two Truths and a Lie, Mm. uh, the data science failure edition. The classic icebreaker between us, two people (laughs) who've never met. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Uh, So I will say some of these stories were inspired by the great Data Mishaps Night, uh, which I've mentioned on this podcast earlier. Uh, and I got, uh, I did get permission from everyone who shared their stories there to reshare on the podcast. Um, but I will say, uh, because the event was not recorded, this is also just, uh, these may not be exactly how the stories happened. Um, but they're pretty So, close. okay. So to be clear, we are playing two truths and a lie. The two <laughs> truths yes. are stories that people have about real, real data incidents that happen to people. Yes. Real to, and then the lie yes. is like, you made something that sounds implausible, but is implausible because it was a lie. Exactly. Okay, that makes sense. I think I got it. It probably could have happened to someone somewhere, but it did not happen that I heard about the lie. Okay, yes. <laughs> okay. All right, yes. all right. Depends if you believe in the multiverse. Okay. <laughs> so uh, we're going to do a couple rounds of this. So the first round, right? So three stories. Okay. First story is uh, this is from an analyst who worked at a school district. And one of their tasks was figuring out what bonus teachers uh, were eligible for based on their attendance. So the analyst is doing this work in, I believe, Excel, and they accidentally use an index match for the maximum bonus instead of the actual bonus. So about the half the teachers uh, got a letter saying that they'd get the max. So all the teachers got a letter saying they get the max bonus, but actually about half of them were, should not have gotten this. We're not eligible. And the school district had to follow up and say, whoops, there was a data error. You actually don't get any bonus. That feels very plausible. Let's hear the other. But that one, oh my God, that's, whew, like, okay. God, the, the mistakes you can make in Excel. Yes. Yeah. So, it does feel like you could have just done a sum if or something at the end <laughs> to see how ridiculously high the bonus is. But, but okay, okay, yeah. what's the second one? Okay, so the second one is a power company accidentally put the date field and the amount due, and so someone's bill was over $200,000 for a month because it started with the year first. Someone famous, maybe? <laughs> we don't know. Jacqueline, <laughs> if you know these stories, Who knows? no cheating. Okay, okay, right. who's the And then... Working with a data set about trains, uh, this person found that some trains departed before they arrived. Doesn't make a lot of sense. Uh, so it turns out the problem was they had uh, row-binded multiple CSVs together, 
and the column order of the arrival and the departure time was switched. So for example, in some of them, it was first the third column was arrival, the fourth was departure, and some of them, third was departure, fourth was arrival. But when you row bind them all together, it just takes the, what, what it, you know, the name of the column from the first data set. So she did not realize that actually the order was wrong in uh, about like half of the data set. Okay. Okay. Should I guess? Yes. Are you ready? Okay. I'm ready. So first off, I'm going to say, if this is Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me Rules, and Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, that podcast has a very similar game. Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me Rules. You get to say, hey, no, I saw that news article. I know that news article was real or made up or whatever. And so I want to say, I saw the tweet you based All that. Because right. it was Hadley. You got to pick someone like well, Hadley Wickham. I feel like our, our <laughs> listeners haven't necessarily yeah. okay, seen this that's stuff. that's true. So still felt okay. like a good story. That's true. I, well, good. Yeah, you're right. So now for the other two. I don't know. But here's my hunch. My hunch is you made up the last one, and here's why. That is a very plausible mistake to make. Just like the 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 bus one is a very plausible mistake to make. But the plus one the bus one had a catastrophic moral to the story of like, and then and then like people didn't get their bonus. Whereas in this one, in the the train one, there wasn't uh and then trains crashed or like blah, 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 like there you know wasn't. You're calling then, it bus instead of bonus? I assume you meant bonus. Why did you I said say, the bus story. I, I was like, what's the bus story? I don't story? know why. I guess I got it a very transit-themed <laughs> mindset trying to sleuth this out. Yes, bonus. You know, you know, when you said school district at the beginning, I think in my head I started th- thinking it was about school buses for some reason, and it wasn't. It was about bonuses, and then it just, in my head, sucked. Anyway, so my hunch is that the last one is made up because I think it doesn't have that, like, this is so wild it became a conference talk twist at the end. Um, and that is going to be my hunch. That's my logic. Okay, you are incorrect. That one is <gasps> true. The the school district one is also somewhat true. But so the the lie was though that because uh, I said the school district followed up and said actually you don't get the bonus. But in fact, what they did was they honored the letters that they sent out. So all of these teachers got the max bonus. Oh, yeah. So that's a good twist. Yeah. So yeah. I, I will say not all these stories are completely made up. There's some of them just had some yeah. stuff changed partly to make a lie. Yes. So. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Okay. And, and I think, that was tough. I think that's a great example though, because when you talk about like scary things, right? I, don't, I mean. The, the person didn't share how much this costs the school district, but I imagine it could be easily tens of thousands of dollars, um, maybe hundreds of thousands. I don't know. So it's a, it's a good, and she didn't get fired, you know, and her colleagues yeah. are very understanding. Yeah, I think these things do have, they, they can have big consequences if it's like a mix right because like a lot of this podcast we talked about like oh but what if you can't make the model in the first place and then this is the very different thing of like oh we did it and it actually had an error and it caused cascading sequence of events and yeah i think those situations are tricky because it is very you know like in the the bonus case to be like and i am the reason our school kids you know like aren't gonna get good meals like, like it's very easy to like really internalize that but also this stuff happens a lot and like no matter how much you cause chaos in your with your mistake, like there's a person who made a typo in a in a uh, Excel spreadsheet and they cost a company six billion dollars, right? The the London Whale or whatever. And there's that those people who got a Nobel Prize for the economics worth in Excel, and it turns out it was an Excel error and there was nothing there, and they lost. You know, like there's so much. Like there, those people like have to go to work the next day after doing yep. those things, and they do. You know, and so like. As bad as your situation is, and it can be quite bad, like, you know, things keep going. Yeah, things go on. All right, so next round. Hopefully you do better this time. Oh, my God, I didn't realize there were multiple. Okay, oh, yeah. all right, let's go. There, let's there go. are three rounds, okay. uh, so nine, nine right. total stories. Okay, so first story. Um, so this person's working at a company in Seattle, and they're querying an API multiple times a day for their, you know, for their work about parking data. And it, t- it takes, like, a really long time each time. And... Uh, they later talked to the CTO of that API company who said, hey, every time you run that query, our whole database slows down. And it turns out it's because they were querying not just for Seattle parking data, but this was uh, uh, the API company had data for the entire country. And every time that this person was querying, it was querying for the entire country. Okay. All right. Tell me the next one. I will will listen to all and then refer my So the next one is when cleaning data, this person found that uh, there was null, NA, and blanks, like in the data. So like three different uh, things. And so they coerced these all to blank. So they're like, okay, this is all missing data. But it turns out later that all of those actually meant 
different things. And so all of their interpretations were wrong because they assumed, oh, null and a and blank means the same thing. Mm -mm. Those all meant different things. Okay, and then the last one is someone was working at a university trying to predict whether students would drop out. And one day they took a tour of the dorm and realized a student's room location wasn't in the data set, but that's something that they could, could add. Uh, they had the floor plans. And so when they added that to the model, they found out that uh, the higher the floor the student was on, the more likely they were to drop out. So all of these seem extremely plausible. The first one with the API being hit and caused the whole thing, that is both the stunt I would inadvertently pull and queer that API incorrectly. And also I feel like I've been at companies where people did that to us. Like that feels very real. The second one also, I feel like this happens to me once a week where I'm like, NAs, blanks, these must be the same thing. It's like, no, they're totally different. You just, no one is around to tell you what the difference is. So that also feels quite reasonable. Um, again, missing that flourish of, and then tragedy happened, or like then like the exciting <laughs> twist. Whereas the last one of like, oh, it turns out that where you live, the the number of floors you have to walk to your campus room or whatever, like that is extremely. I I a hundred percent believe that. Like that feels right. I'm going to guess the middle one is not the true story because that is such a like that story happened to me personally. Like it's such a open story that I don't think you could like. Yeah, you can't, it's like, a, like it's it's anyone. You can't attribute, like, oh, one person told that story at a conference because we've all been there. <laughs> you so. are wrong again. One person did tell no. that story at the conference. There were some more details ah. about the consequences that I forgot. Uh, so the lie was the university one. And again, this was like a small twist. So it was that they, you know, the model wasn't doing so great. They went toward the dorms, but it wasn't uh, their floor number. It was whether they were below the floor of a fraternity or athletes, um, which is what dictated it. So I guess like that really is loud fascinating. Partying. Yeah, I stand by. I bet the other one's still true too. But that is fascinating. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, wait, yeah. You said yeah. Um, so yeah. So that was uh, interesting. I also liked including that because like the the moral of that story, right, was that sometimes the data that you need for your model is not in your original data set, and so like going out and like you know exploring more. And so this this person was saying if they'd never taken a tour of the dorm, it when they knew that roommates were predictive and that was in the model. I think it's like whether your roommate dropped out or not. Um, but they didn't think to think about like, okay, what's your what's your location in the dorm? And this is kind of like, I don't know, some sort of like grand unifying theory I have. But like, I feel like when it comes to features in your data, they're either almost meaningless. And no matter how much how cool your model is, you won't get much value out of them. Or they are so powerful like that, that just adding that variable in the first place is better than switching to a better model type. And so like really putting thought into getting the data, like that totally makes sense. So, yeah. All right. So you're zero for two, Ken, Jacqueline. <laughs> Make it up in the I last I thought round. I'd be so good at that. <laughs> I thought you like, said you heard some of them. Like in the first one, you actually had a 50% chance. It's pretty sad. Uh, all right. Well, that's what, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> okay. Maybe I'm just too good at this. All right. So the third, third round, three stories. Okay. So first story, um, someone published a paper about how the first number in the zip code you're born in correlates to how much income you'll make as an adult. But it turns out zip codes change over time. And when you accounted for that, their results disappeared. Whoosh. Right? So they assumed like, oh, the zip code of this area, like this street is this now. Nope. Changed over time. All right. Second one. So this person had quarterly GDP data and wanted to estimate what the GDP is monthly. So they interpolated it. Um, so for example, if the GDP was $100,000 in Q1, 190,000 in Q2, they said February was 100,000, March 130, April 160, May 190, right? It's like making a little line. But GDP is an aggregated method. Um, so the quarters add up uh, are, are, the, are the sum of the months. Um, so if you, if you interpolate it this way, you now have three times as much GDP uh, when you put back from this monthly to quarterly. So they only discovered this when they talked to an economics expert who was like, yeah, that's not how GDP works. Interesting. Does that make okay. sense? Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So yes, you don't want to add up all yeah. the months. Quarter. Okay. And then yeah. the last one is a company was promoting a specific framework and they published an article showing that it was 40 times faster than a competitive competitor. Woo. But after revisiting this a couple months later, the data scientists discovered that because they'd left certain defaults on, the other framework was dropping most of the data, and that's why it was so much faster. And they had to issue a retraction that it was only four times faster. Um, 
So I'm going to guess that the fake one is the first one because the GDP one feels too one. real. Like almost mm-hmm. z- the zip code one because the GDP one feels too real. Also, zip codes don't change like that much, right? Do they? And yeah, yeah, I think the zip code one's the fake. Yeah. You're right. You know, these examples, so like, what are these, like, so if we go back to like all nine stories, uh, what are they kind of showing, right? You said like, sometimes you do make big mistakes that cost real money. Sometimes you, like other people had uh, um, examples where they like published papers or like, right, and then they had to issue attractions. Um, you know, that that kind of stuff can happen. The best thing, as we talked about in the episode, is owning up to it. Um, and the other thing is like, we learned about like domain expert, right? So like that GDP thing, they only kind of figured that out because they talked to someone who's like familiar with GDP and economics and are like, oh yeah, that's not, <laughs> that's not, that's, you, you can't do that. Uh, that's not how it works. Well, and I feel like all of these are not like, we really thought that using an XG boost was going to work, but then when we oh, yeah. tried it, it didn't. Like they're all like very innocuous of mm-hmm. like, oh, one little mix up or like thinking about something incorrectly in one little way actually totally changed stuff. Like it's, it's like the small things that get you, not the like the big things. So that's our show for this week. Check out our next episode as we discuss joining the data science community. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a review. If you have a question or feedback, you can send email to podcast at bestbook.cool. You can buy a copy of the book at bestbook.cool and use the code buildbook40%. So 40% simple for 40% off. Our theme song is by the extremely funny Matt Bouchel. Thanks to our publishing, Manning, for helping our pod, our, our book and our podcast exist. And may your categorical data not be missing levels.